one of the things that you would have seen if you were at VBS this past week, uh, beyond just a lot of excited, yelling, happy children, is a common sight you would have seen is crew leaders who were doing this. Again and again and again. And, and they were doing that because they were trying to count the amount of kids in their crew, figuring out, do we have everyone we started with tonight, or did we forget someone at the last station we were at? Crew leaders recognize the one thing that you don't want to do is forget one of your kids, leave one of them behind. You, you want to remember them and keep them going with you. I would guess for all of us here this morning, there, there's been some time in your life where you've forgotten something important and then tried to rack your brain of where is that so you could remember where it was. That, that maybe it's a, a wallet or car keys or a phone uh, or some toy, or maybe you did leave a child behind somewhere. And in that moment, you know, it's a, it's a scary experience and you rack your brain trying to remember, okay, where... Where did I put that? Where did I leave that? Trying to remember and then find whatever you lost. Uh, I'm guessing because there's kids in the service, many of you recognize this person or this character. Who is that? Dory, Dory that's right. Dory uh, of Finding Nemo, Finding Dory fame. And if you've seen those movies, you, you know one of the things about Dory is that Dory forgets a lot of things. That, that she's in constant need of being reminded, that, that she struggles from short-term memory loss and kind of every 10 seconds forgets what she was doing or who she was and has to be reminded again that Dory is in constant need of remembering or being reminded of something. And, and I want to suggest this morning, we aren't that different from the character of Dory. And I don't mean by that that we forget everything every 10 seconds. But I mean by that that we have a tendency to forget what's important. To act as if it's not true. And that we constantly need to be reminded. Constantly need to be remembering certain truths and living in light of them. I would suggest one of the causes of our unhappiness at times, or our lack of joy in this life, is our forgetfulness of what's really true. That, that one of the things that causes us not to have joy is that we forget, we don't remember what's true. Like, I, I don't know about you, but there are lots of moments in my life where I struggle to have joy, to be happy. What, what do we do in the mornings where we wake up and we don't feel like there's any cause for joy. I mean, what, what do you do in the moments where days are really difficult and it just seems to sap every ounce of joy you have? What do you do when you lay your head down to sleep, trying to fall asleep at night, and the last thing you feel in that moment is joy? I think in those moments and all sorts of other moments, we're called to remember so that we can rejoice, to remember what's true, so that we can rejoice. This morning we're going to be in 1 John 3. And we're just going to be looking at the first three verses in this chapter. And we're just over halfway through this series looking at 1 John. And specifically what we might 
learn from John about what it means to be full of joy, having complete joy. And as we read these verses this morning, I think John simply wants us to remember, to remember certain really important truths that can be cause for joy in our life no matter what, to remember who we are, to remember where we're headed, and to rejoice in light of both of those truths. And so we'll read 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and just go up through verse 3 this morning. But let's pray before we read those words. Father, you are a good and great Father who loves us, who's called us your children, who set us free from slavery to sin, free from all fear. God, we are in constant need of remembering and believing that type of truth, remembering and believing just who we are and just how great it is to have you as our Father. God, you you know us, you know every part of us, and you know how forgetful we can be. And so I pray that this morning one of the things that you would do for all of us is to help us to remember and as a result to worship and rejoice you and delight in the gospel that makes the things we're about to read true. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John says this, starting in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John, first of all, would tell us, remember who you are. God's children. That... that At the core of what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, is this. To have God as our father and to be called his children. And I think that's a truth that we we hear maybe so often or we just assume that we tend to forget just how incredible and central this is to our faith. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, has a whole chapter on adoption And he has probably one of the most famous quotes about this, where he he says this, you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. Now, now I recognize that that image that God gives us of being a father 
might be a difficult image for many because of the reality of having a father who, who wasn't a good role model, model or, or a father who wasn't present at all. And when we read in Scripture that God is a father, part of what it's saying is he's the father all of our hearts so desperately long for. That he's the perfect father. That even the best dads on this earth are only a faint reflection of. Like this is at the very core of who we are in Christ. This is the highest privilege of what it is to be a Christian. To have God as our father and to be called his children. And I think that ESV, which we just read, makes a mistake by not putting an exclamation point on the end of that first sentence. When John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Other translations put an exclamation point behind that verse, and I think you should, because John's getting at this, look at this, behold this, take this in. This past week on one night, we got home from VBS and pulled into our driveway. And I was driving the car and I had my son in the back seat. And along the back edge of our yard, kind of right by the field, we saw several deer. And so I told Oliver, Oliver, see the deer out there? No, I, I immediately said, Oliver, look, there's deer out there. And I, I stopped the car and I got him out and I said, hey, let's go check this out. And we ran out there to get a closer look at this and to take it in and said, look at those deer, Oliver. Let's see how close we can get at them. That's the type of, I think, urgency that John has in this verse. Look at this. See this. Behold this. Look at what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called his children. And, and notice where John's finger is specifically pointed as he talks about our adoption into God's family, at God's love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That, that adoption gives us this framework from which to better grasp and understand God's love for us. And I think even in this first verse, we can grasp, look at three things about God's love that come through as we think about being adopted into his family. First of all, the wonder of God's love. We read, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That, that word, what kind, can actually better mean from what country. Like, where did this come from? Where is this out of? It, it's, it's almost kind of like what would happen if someone gave you some new food and you tasted it, and it was the best thing you've ever eaten in your life, and your response was, where did you get this from? Where did this come from? That, that's what that word's saying. What kind of love? This is an otherworldly type of love. This is a love unlike any other. That the God who made everything adopts us into his family and calls us his children. It's the highest privilege we can imagine. Last week, uh, I sat down to watch the NBA draft because there's no other sports on TV right now and I like to watch sports. So I watched the NBA draft. And it was fascinating to see, well, to hear rather, what players said right after they were drafted. Like they would have an interview immediately after they were drafted onto an NBA team. And it was fascinating just to listen to like, what are they thinking in that moment? What, what's going on in their brains? And the number one pick sat down 
He was getting interviewed, and, and they kind of asked him, like, what, what are you thinking? What's going on right now? And he said these words. I can't believe what just happened, honestly. I never thought this would happen. I wanted to be in the NBA, but I didn't know I would be here. I really honestly didn't. So this is unbelievable, and I can't speak right now. Like, players are left speechless over and over again by just how incredible it is to be chosen and picked for an NBA team. And I I watch that, and I think, how much more should it leave us speechless when we reflect on the truth that God has chosen us to be in his family and to just say, that's incredible. That's incredible. That's a love unlike anything that we've ever seen before. We, We can see not only the wonder of the love in our adoption, but also the gift of God's love. Because John tells us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. The truth that we've been adopted into God's family through faith in Christ forever reminds us that God's love is a gift given to us, not something we earn or keep. Like that, that's so basic for Christianity, and yet it's so easy to forget. Because think of how easy it is to fill in the blank that says, God loves me because blank, with an I statement. I don't know if you do that, but I just have a tendency to do that. Like, God loves me because because I'm trying to be a good person. Because because I'm trying not to sin as much. Because I'm trying to be a part of the church and serve at VBS. Because I'm trying my best here. Because because I'm trying to be a good dad, a good husband. How easy it is to fill in that God loves me because starting with I, something I do. And our adoption forever tells us, no, God loves us because God chose us, saved us, gave up his son for us, and adopted us into his family. Not because of anything at all in us or anything we would ever be. Another thing that came up as I was watching the NBA draft when these players would get interviewed is you would hear them say something to the effect of, I've worked so hard for this. I've put in my time. I've put in my effort. And now this is the reward for all my hard work. Like over and over again, you kind of heard that theme show up as players talk. I thought, it's kind of a weird thought, but how different would it be if the first pick in the draft or any pick in the draft was instead someone who never played basketball before and who was paralyzed from the waist down. Everyone's response to that would not be, he or she works so hard, but would rather be, why him? Why her? Like, what is this team thinking? Our adoption into God's family. Like, we were worse than, (laughs) worse is the wrong word to say. It's not just that we were paralyzed, we were dead the Bible tells us. It's not just that we had nothing to offer. We were his enemies, and God chooses his enemies and makes them his sons and daughters. That reality should every single day have us saying, why, why me? Why me? 
why would God do that? Why would he ever do that? And then the third thing I think that we can see here is the comfort of God's love in adopting us into his family. It's, it's interesting to me that John adds at the end of this verse, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It's almost as if John's saying, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks or says about you. Like, it just doesn't matter whether the, the world would say, you're wrong, you're a loser, you're stupid, you don't have, like, it just doesn't matter what anyone else thinks because you are God's children. Think about the type of comfort that comes from that. When we're really able to say, it doesn't matter to me what anyone else thinks or says about me. Like, it just doesn't matter. What matters is what God says and thinks about me, and he calls me his child. There, there is a type of freedom and comfort that comes from that that can't be found anywhere else. As I was reflecting on this verse this week, trying to kind of meditate on it, think about what, what to say a Sunday morning, I, I kept coming back to it's kind of one thing for me to try to describe this reality. It's another thing to see this reality in action. Like it's one thing for me to try to describe what it's like for God to adopt us and make us his children. It's another thing to see that happening. After all, John says, see, look at, behold what type of love. And so to that end, I, I want to show this video. It's a, it's a five-minute video that gives us a picture of adoption that hopefully helps us wrap our minds more around what a privilege it is to be God's children. Wow, we would have never on our own have written the script for us to be here right now tonight. So So ready or not. Let's do here it. We go. Let's do it. to have children for the last nine years and um, in that in that time we discovered that um, we had some struggles with infertility I can't wait to see what the next 12 hours or so holds tonight we could be going back to our hotel in California with our baby boy and that's the hope that I'm holding on to In a matter of hours, what I've always, for so many years, have wanted and prayed for is going to happen. You know, the whole trip is all, it's all been about closing the distance between us and our son. I can't believe that, I can't believe that we're this close. Anytime I think about adoption, I think about my spiritual adoption, about how Jesus went to infinitely greater lengths to adopt me into the family of God. 
what a privilege it is to, in, in a smaller way, in a human way, live out some of the truth of the gospel. The peace and the joy that we're feeling is absolute evidence of hundreds of people. I mean, I literally, I believe there are hundreds of people that are praying for us tonight. The nurse just asked us if we're excited to meet our son. And it, I paused for a second there because I think it's the first time that I heard someone else refer to him as our son. Like it's been years, but now it's like we're down to just minutes, you know? And as we walk in, it's going to be seconds. And <laughs> it's hard to believe that this may be the last few minutes of us just being a family of two. Jacob. Jacob. See, look at just now he's not even gonna wake and he's already sleeping. Hey, buddy. Here, I got a rocking chair for you. Okay. Oh, it's going. Oh, we did so long to meet you. Oh my gosh. He's like the most beautiful baby I've ever seen. Jacob, I'm your dad. <laughs> you have no idea. You have no idea how many people have prayed for you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called as children. Like if you're a parent, I would guess you have flashbacks of what it was like to see your child for the first time. And I think so much of our fear, our worry, our doubt in this life, all of our problems in this life in many ways are related to we forget that just as that father looks on his son in absolute delight and joy and pleasure is the type of love that we have in God, in Christ. The type of love you're invited into if you've not trusted Christ before. John says, when we lack joy, when, we, when joy seems absent or difficult, remember who you are. Remember who you are, God's child. But he doesn't stop there. 
He goes on and he says, remember where you're headed. A glorious future. Remember where you're headed. In verse 2, he says these words. Again, reminding us first who we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And then says, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John lays out a vision for where we're headed. What we will see and what we will be. And he says, think about that. Focus on that. And let that bring you joy as you remember your future. I I don't know how many of you are like me but I have a tendency that when I have a vacation coming up, sometime that I'm going to get away, a couple days off, I use thoughts of that vacation to get me through difficult days. You probably do this too. Like life is rough. It's okay. I've got this coming up in the future. I can make it through whatever's difficult right now. John is laying out for us a vision of our future and saying, remember, this is where you're headed and rejoice in light of that. He he first of all tells us that on that day, we're going to see a sight unlike any other, that we're going to see God face to face for the first time in our lives. See Jesus face to face, standing before us. And it will be a sight unlike anything we've ever seen before. In the past, people referred to this as the beatific vision. Sounds like a really fancy wording. And do you know what it means? That's just a fancy way of saying a sight that makes one happy. A sight that makes someone happy. That on that day, we're going to see God face to face and have a type of joy and happiness that we've never felt before in our lives. Like in this life, we get glimpses of him in his world, in his people, in his word as we worship together. But on that day, we're going to see him face to face and our hearts will explode with joy as we take him in. One of the most amazing sights in the world, so I'm told, is the the Northern Lights. I've got a picture of it here. Have any of you been to see the Northern Lights before? I'm just curious. Okay, some have. That's awesome. Well, I I don't know what your experience was like when you see them. I've never seen them before. So I was just going off. How has someone tried to describe what it's like to see the Northern Lights in person? And someone who's an expert in kind of the Northern Lights, who's seen them many times, describes it in this way. He says, it's so hard to paint a picture of the overwhelming emotional impact that it has. He said, I would call it dancing lights in the sky. There's a rhythm to it. There's a color scheme to it. It's almost like heavenly visual music. You've likely experienced something like that in some sight you've seen in this world before. Something incredible that just leaves you stunned. I think 
if sites in the world can have that type of impact on us, how much more will the impact be of us seeing God who's made it all face to face for the first time have on us? That, that there will be a type of joy and happiness that just overwhelms us in that moment. And in that instant, all pain, all fear, all doubt, all insecurities, all sin, everything that weighs us down, gone in an instant. Gone in an instant. One of my favorite things to do at weddings, I wonder if you do this too, one of my favorite things to do at weddings is to watch the groom right before he sees his bride and right after he sees his bride. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right before he sees his bride, especially if he's not done the first look, he's like a bundle of nerves up there. Maybe even looks a little white in his face, like overwhelmed with everyone staring at him. And yet the moment, the moment he sees his bride, there's a transformational effect on his face. Joy literally washes over him. And it's like he is a new person in some sense as he watches her walk down the aisle. And John's saying, that's the exact same thing that's going to happen to us when we see Jesus face to face. It says, we'll see him as he is and we'll be like him. That it'll be a day unlike any other before. In that day, all that's broken healed. Let me just think about that. Minds, perfect. Bodies, perfect. Hearts, perfect. All sin, gone. Everything, death, suffering, in an instant, gone, transformed. It will be a day unlike any other that we can only imagine what it will be like. Here's something that I think is incredible to think about. Right now, we travel all over the world to take in incredible sights. The Northern Lights, maybe the Grand Canyon, Mount Everest, other places like that. And yet what the Bible tells us is that on that day, creation itself will long to see us and what we are in that moment. This is what Romans 8.19 gets at. It says for creation, the whole world is waiting, standing on its tiptoes, eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Just can't wait to see what you and I will be on that day when we're fully revealed as God's sons. I I came across a a picture of what I think will happen or, or, or what in some way, some small way that day will be like for us. It's in the book, The Great Alone. And in that book, there's a character who suffers so much in that book. His life is weighed down with pain and suffering the entire way through the book. And then near the end of the book, he finds out that he has a young son who he didn't know about. And he's about to meet his son for the first time. And here's how the author describes that moment. She says, of all the things he dreamed of over the years, tried so hard to believe in when the pain was at its worst, this was something he'd never dared to even hope for. Like of all that we dream of that future day for us in Christ, in reality, it'll be something we dared never even hope for. It will exceed all our expectations, all our imaginations on that day. And then John tells us this, live like that day is coming. 
Like, live like that day is coming. He who thus hopes purifies himself as Jesus is pure. What we set our hopes on for tomorrow should affect how we live today. And John's saying, if our hope is to see Christ face to face and be like him, then we've got a renewed purpose for today to pursue becoming like him, to pursue holiness, being conformed to Christ right here, right now. See, I think the more that we set our hope on seeing Jesus, being like him in that day, the more we have the type of power and purpose today to become like him. And so it becomes really important for us to hope for that day, for heaven, for what that will be like. I love some of the descriptions people give to stir our imaginations for that day. Here's what Joni Erickson Tata says in a great kid's book about heaven. She says, life will be like standing under a waterfall of happiness. Don't you love that image? Life will be like standing under just a waterfall of happiness. There will always be a tomorrow, and every tomorrow will be better than every yesterday. Here's how Randy Alcorn describes it. Jesus will be the center of everything. Happiness will be the lifeblood of our resurrected lives. And just when we think it doesn't get any better than this, it will. <laughs> like that, that's an incredible hope. And John's saying the more that we hope for that day, the more joyfully we will live for Christ right now, today, as we long for it. When joy seems absent or distant or difficult, remind yourself of where you're headed in Christ. Remind yourself of what God has promised us through faith in Christ. J.I. Packer, in his book or chapter on adoption, which I mentioned earlier, says there are six things that a Christian should be constantly reminding himself or herself of. Six truths that day after day after day, we should remember and say to ourselves. Or six truths that God invites you into if you're not a Christian when you trust in Christ. And here's what they are. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime when your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. Remember who you are, God's child, and rejoice. Remember where you're headed, a glorious future, and rejoice. And then the last thing we might say this morning is this, remember what it costs, Jesus' death. See, Galatians 4 which also talks about our adoption, says this about the cost that was paid for our adoption. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, says God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to purchase, to buy back those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Or as the dad in the video said earlier, Anytime I think about adoption, I think about my spiritual adoption, about how Jesus went to infinitely greater lengths to adopt me into the family of God. This morning, we celebrate communion. Like I said, we we believe communion is a family celebration where we remember the great lengths God has went to 
to bring us into his family, the price he's paid. And if you're a follower of Christ, you've trusted in Jesus to save you, whether you're a part of Keystone or not, we want you to celebrate with us. And if you haven't been brought into God's family yet, you haven't confessed your sin, trust in Christ, then we'd encourage you not, not to eat and drink, but rather to use this time to reflect on and maybe even receive God's invitation to be welcomed into his family forever. Every month, uh, my wife and I get something in the mail. It's from our mortgage company. It's a statement for our mortgage. And it reminds us how much we still owe on our house. Every month it shows up and it reminds us that the house is yours, yes, but you still have to pay for it. And here's what you owe on this. You, 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 you can enjoy the house as long as you keep paying in on it. Here's what you owe. There was a cost for this house and, and you need to keep paying for it. When we take communion together, we remember there was a price, a massive price for us to be brought into God's family and to have our home with him in the future secured forever. It was not cheap. It costs far more than whatever our houses might cost. But communion, when we take it together, also reminds us God is not mailing us a mortgage statement each month saying, here's how much you still owe. Here's how much you still have to pay for this to be true. He's inviting us to eat and drink and remember it was already completely paid for 2,000 years ago on the cross that all that was needed to secure our entrance into his family, secure our home forever, was paid for us by Christ on the cross. Our adoption has been finalized, our hope forever secured. And so Jesus invites us, eat and drink, remember what it costs and rejoice because it's already been fully paid for. So, so he says to us this morning, as we take the bread, take of this, eat, do this in remembrance of me and rejoice. And then he gives us the juice and he says, this is my blood, which was shed for you to gain your entrance into my family forever. Drink, do this in remembrance of me and rejoice. Father, we rejoice in these truths. Help them to sink down into our lives. Help us to believe they are utterly and completely true. We are your children. We have a glorious future. It's already all been paid for by Christ. I pray that as the song we're about to sing captures some of this truth, we would remember Christ has paid for it all. Therefore, we can sing who we are and know that we're loved by you. I pray this in Jesus' name.